I'm Katie Prejean McGrady, and this is Ave Explores. The Eucharist is not a holy object. This is something that we heard in our teaser episode last week with Father Craig Vasek. The Eucharist is not this this thing that we just go get, buy it off the shelf, a la you know new plates for the kitchen or the milk that has to be in your fridge for the very hungry toddler at six o'clock in the morning. It's not this thing. It's a person. And it's easy to understand, well, I I have to have a relationship with a person. I I can't just use an individual. I can't just go get something from that individual. I, I can't just talk to them when I need something. That's not a real relationship. That's use. So the Eucharist is a person, Jesus Christ, present to his body, blood, soul, and divinity. How do I grow in relationship with that person? How do I understand that this is Jesus Christ present to me as he promised so that I can then, in a a very profound way, be present to others because I've been changed by this relationship with Jesus Christ? That sounds quite flowery and, you know, very theologically nice to listen to, you know, at least I think so. But there's so much more to this pursuit of a relationship with Jesus Christ that hopefully ultimately results in really living a Eucharistic life. I don't just go to Mass on Sunday, come home, that's the end of it. I go to Mass on Sunday and then the way I behave, the way I live, the choices I make, the decisions, the things I say, all of that is hopefully colored by, touched by, changed by that Eucharist that I received just a few hours before. That the way I approach the stranger and the best friend, the conversation I have with my child and my spouse and my next door neighbor and the teacher at school drop-off and the lady who checks me out when I buy my groceries, right? All of those moments touched by, changed by the way I have been touched and changed by my encounter with our Eucharistic Lord and my continued relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes I think we think the Eucharist is is this holy object or even perhaps this project, like something that I do. And and so I go to adoration, I go to mass, I try to live this Eucharistic life, I check that off my list, a la, you know, we do this with Lent all the time. Oh, I've got my things I'm going to do in the Lenten season. And rather than live the Lenten season, I'm just turning it into this, this giant project, this giant to-do list as if I can somehow win Lent. And we do this with a lot of things in our faith. I'm going to win my Eucharistic relationship. I'm going to win Jesus. Even that kind of an attitude makes us think that the Eucharist is some sort of prize for the perfect, as opposed to some sort of medicinal experience for the impoverished and the sick, which is all of us. The Eucharistic revival, this movement that we're very much in and and experiencing and living and, and hopefully being revived as a result of, It's really profound to have conversations about it because everybody kind of approaches it a little bit differently. Oh, it's this. Oh, it's that. Oh, it could be this. We want it to be this. Or we've seen it be that. And and I think that's really quite beautiful that there's not this cookie cutter explanation of what is happening or what is moving through the hearts and the minds of individuals as we invite Jesus Christ to come reign in us in a new way. What's also really quite amazing, I think, is that as revival is happening, present tense, and will continue to happen as new life is coming forth. There's also this opportunity within the heart of every individual, maybe listening to this podcast or even just, you know, the casual Catholic who doesn't even know this series is going on, to return to the Eucharist and to be revived by Jesus Christ and by that relationship. Again, not as this project, as this holy object, as this thing I get because of me, but this person I need because of me this person who can change me, this faith that can be set on fire. I think every season I try to kind of tell you why we're having these conversations about the Eucharist, and I maybe forgot to do that last week. Every year when we sit down and map out, okay, here's what we're doing in the three, four seasons that we pull together, whether it's our Advent season, our Lent season, our kickoff season, the the various topics that we're going to really try to dig into and explore, hence the name of the show. The Eucharist was just this glaringly obvious thing, not a holy object, but component of our faith 
that we wanted to dig into. We've talked about the Mass. We've talked about the Blessed Virgin Mary. We've talked about Catholic family life. We've talked about the saints. We've talked about art and architecture. It's not that we've been avoiding the source and summit of our faith, but we figured let's give the 20th season to our source and summit of faith. And what providential timing to have these conversations about the Eucharist in a moment of revival, these matches being struck, these fires starting to burn, this faith hopefully starting to expand in new ways at a crisis moment in some sense, where people aren't attending Mass as much as they used to, where people don't believe perhaps with the same fervor or understanding as they used to. And this podcast isn't being put out there simply because, oh, we hope maybe somebody's mind will be changed. We know who our audience is. I think a lot of it is rooted in this desire to spark a continued fervor and a growing love of the person of Jesus Christ present to us in the Eucharist so that we can live a Eucharistic life in a whole new way. I wanted to sit down with someone who's part of that movement, but also very much living this in her her vocation, her reality every single day as a religious sister of the Eucharist, but also someone who's been writing and speaking and participating in the nitty-gritty components of the revival itself. Sister Alicia Torres is a, a sister of the Franciscans, sisters of the Eucharist of Chicago, a relatively young order. They were founded in 2010 with this pursuit of serving the poor, of showcasing and showing and, and teaching and educating about the Eucharist in new ways. And, and hopefully that love of the Eucharist is the driving force in all that they do, as it should be in all of our lives. Sister Alicia is fun. She's dynamic. She's funny. She's got great things to say, has a sharp mind, especially when it comes to just being able to articulate the gospel. She's a real gem. You might have heard her name or recognized her name because she's in charge of the Revival's newsletter, which is hopefully coming straight to your inbox. You can sign up to get those newsletters right into your inbox every single week. They're really just good conversations that are being sparked in there. And today's conversation about truly being transformed by the Eucharist as this this change agent, but also this invitation, right? The Eucharist is an invitation to allow Jesus to love us. I think you're going to love it. We hope you sit back and enjoy this conversation with Sister Alicia Torres. Sister, welcome to Ave Explorers. I was telling you before we got started, I feel like I know you because I get your emails and my mom will frequently be like, oh, have you read what Sister Alicia said? Like, we know you, like you're just like coming over to dinner uh, tell us who you are, where you are. It's so great to get to visit with you. Yeah, thanks for having me, Katie. My name is Sister Alicia Torres, and I'm living in the beautiful city of Chicago. And I mean that sincerely. I know that headlines are not very favorable <laughs> to Chicago, but the majority of the people here are wonderful people. And there are many, many faithful people in Chicago. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's a real privilege to be here in the wonderful Midwest. And my religious community, the Franciscans of the Eucharist of Chicago, we were canonically or established officially in the church in 2010. And we do the work of serving the poor, evangelization and teaching. And yeah, I I love my vocation. I love being a religious sister and sharing the treasures of our faith with God's people is is a great joy. That's relatively young. I didn't know y'all were only 13 years old. What's the story there? How did the sisters become to be? Yeah, you know, back in the early 2000s, then the late Cardinal George, God rest his soul, was looking at the landscape in Chicago and recognized, you know, like in many of our major cities, that a lot of Catholic parishes and poorer areas were closing mm-hmm. for want of Catholics to be part of the parish. And so particularly on the West side, that was happening. And the Cardinal at the time was very concerned that it would appear the church was abandoning the poor. Mm-hmm. And so he wanted there to be a Catholic presence, even in a location where we couldn't sustain parish life. And so he reached out to the Franciscan Friars of the Renewal in New York because they're known for their work in the inner city and being faithful witnesses to the church. And, you know, through a series of events and invitations and visits, Father Bob Lombardo, who's now Bishop Bob Lombardo, came to Chicago to start a Catholic mission, which is now the mission of Our Lady of the Angels at the former Our Lady of the Angels Parish on the West Side, which some of your listeners may remember the tragic school fire of December 1st, 1958, that claimed the lives of 92 children 
and Three Sisters of Charity of the Blessed Virgin Mary. So in the historical memory of Chicago, and also many people who were young children at that time, it changed fire safety codes. It did many, many good things. There's a lot of good that came out of that profound tragedy. But this location where our community is, is the site of that great tragedy. Mm. And so Father Bob came, started a Catholic mission here to serve the poor. And many young people were coming and attracted to the Franciscan life. And he would encourage us to go visit other communities, go to New York, go see other Franciscans, but recognized that it could very well be the Holy Spirit inviting a new Franciscan community to serve in Chicago. So he discerned that Mm -hmm. closely with Cardinal George. And so that's how our community came to be. And myself and Sister Kate uh, O'Leary, who's here, we were the first two to join. And so we are the oldest, although we don't appear to look that old. (laughs) Um, And it's been a wild adventure. We're still so blessed to have Bishop Lombardo here on a daily basis, even though he's also serving now as the Episcopal Vicar for this region of the Archdiocese. It's so cool to see history unfolding. Because I think in like a hundred years, that story is going to be told and people will think back to these, you know, these significant moments of, okay, we can't abandon the poor. And like, that's, mm-hmm. that's like a mandate within the life of the church. We know that we can't abandon the poor, but, but then to actually do something about it. I'm always fascinated by the names of religious orders because the of something is key, like of mm-hmm. life, of charity, and y'all are of the Eucharist. That's very specific. Why do you think that that title that name was really given. Yeah, you know, it was a very intentional part of Bishop Bob in those very early days. Many people are so familiar from Catholics to non-Catholics to non-believers with St. Francis of Assisi. He's incredibly popular. But, you know, the word association with St. Francis is garden statue. Um, (laughs) I mean, certainly he had profound love (laughs) for God's creation. But many people, Catholics included, have no idea that he was a profoundly Eucharistic saint. Mm. As a matter of fact, at that time in church history in the early 1200s, Lateran IV had taken place and there was a tremendous concern around the proper reverence of the things of the mass and the celebration of the mass and Eucharistic devotion. Mm -hmm. St. Francis wrote a letter to all the priests of the entire world as this little medieval man, (laughs) exhorting them to implement the reforms of Lateran IV And, you know, in the Franciscan spirituality, the incarnation is critical. Mm -hmm. And St. Francis saw it very simply, Christ in the crash, Christ on the cross, Christ in the Eucharist. And so for us as Franciscans of the Eucharist of Chicago, some of the Bishop Lombardo has repeated, which is an echo of St. Teresa of Calcutta, we can't see Jesus in the Eucharist. We can't see him in the poor, including Mm -hmm. our own poverty, right? And when we can see Jesus in the Eucharist, we are having this new way of seeing one another and ourselves. How are we made in God's image and likeness? And how do we reverence the person in front of us? Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. It's almost like there's a a trust that has to happen, a hiddenness, right? Like it's hard sometimes to look at the Eucharist and to believe that's really him. We make mm-hmm. that ascent. So too, sometimes in circumstances and situations and aiding another person or like in feeling our own, you said our own poverty, like where... Could Jesus possibly be in the midst of this loss, in the midst of this tragedy and this pain? What drew you to this? I mean, you said you're one of the first. You just kind of bebopping along in life. Were you discerning with other orders? Did you just randomly bump into Bishop? Like, what's that story? Yeah, it's funny. So what really sparked or opened my heart to recognizing that God was even calling me to religious life was one day it just dawned on me as I walked around my college campus, this Catholic university in the heart of Chicago, how unhappy everybody appeared to be. Mm. You know, and I'm here as like a first generation college student. No one in my family had graduated college. And I'm just like amazed that I even have this opportunity. And yet there's all these other people who share in this tremendous opportunity for education who seem so miserable and just wonder why is it that people are so unhappy? And I realized that it was a lack of the presence of God in our lives, you know, and how was the Lord inviting me to bring him to others? And that's where my heart started to open to this religious vocation. And I I did, I was very drawn to the Sisters of Life because I had done pro-life apostolate work mm-hmm. since I was 13. I mean, 
I did everything. <laughs> well, that would be a whole other story. But then, you know, as I visited with the Sisters of Life and there was an openness on their end to discern with me as well, I just kept getting this sense that the Lord wanted me to be in Chicago. Mm. And I didn't see any community that I felt drawn to. But Bishop Bob at the time was on the board, the priest advisory board for the pro-life office. And so that's how I got to meet him. I heard about his work on the West Side with the poor, but where I really got to understand who he is as a priest was at the Youth 2000 retreat that was first hosted in Chicago in 2005, which is a Eucharistic mm-hmm. center retreat for young people. And I was asked to come, you know, I was a junior in college or a rising senior to be a small group leader, but I ended up staying the whole weekend. And I was just amazed by what was happening and how young people were being invited deeper into relationship with Jesus mm-hmm. and the Eucharist in my own heart, you know, was really set on fire. And so it was from that encounter with him at that retreat that I started to realize perhaps the Lord may be calling me here in Chicago because I had heard um, word that there was possibility of a new Franciscan community being discerned in the city. And so that's how I came to Our Lady of the Angels. Mm. And when I went, came to meet with him about my vocation for the first time, I had never thought about serving the poor. I'd never even served at a food pantry. It was just kind of shocking for a young mm-hmm. adult at that time. <laughs> I was so consumed by pro-life work, which that was where God was calling me, mm-hmm. right? So there was nothing wrong with that. But I remember walking over the, re- the threshold here at Our Lady of the Angels and just had this profound sense of home. Mm. I was like, this is where God wants me to be. I have no idea what the apostolic work is, but this is where God wants me to be. And it's just so clear all these years later that that was a true sense from the Holy Spirit. God worked a profound miracle, waived away almost $100,000 of college debt in less than two years so that I could be here. So I have no doubt in my mind. And yeah, it's just like any vocation, the cross is there but also the joy because mm-hmm. the Lord is there. Yeah. You said that a second ago, right? Franciscan mindset is that Jesus is found in the cross, the crash, and in the Eucharist. And and so it's beautiful to hear, like there was this instant feeling of home, this instant, like, okay, Jesus is present here. And and I, I'm called to this place. I'm called to this, this movement, this work. What is it like? It kind of take us, if you will, behind the veil, under the veil, you know, <laughs> pun totally intended pull back the veil, I guess is really the phrase I'm looking for of like, so you say yes to this, you say yes to this life of the Eucharist will be part of you forever. What, what does it look like when the Eucharist becomes this kind of this change agent within one's life? You know, and and I say that not because it's, as we heard in a recent episode, this holy object, but I feel like a lot of Catholics, we go to church, we receive the Eucharist, we go to holy hour, we spend our time with Jesus, and then it's just back to normal life. Like we just, it's a part as opposed to the source and summit, the foundation. And I imagine there was a bit of a shift in your life, right? To go from, okay, I see all these unhappy people. Why is it they don't have Jesus to, I'm going to marry Jesus. I'm going to give my whole life to him. How, how did that change happen within you? Was it immediate? Was it gradual? And then this is the real, the challenge for other folks. Like how can we make that a reality in our lives? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, this is such a, a critical question, Katie, in our work with the Eucharistic Revival, from the very beginning, Bishop Cousins was using this, this phrase, living a Eucharistic life. Mm-hmm. And I think that this question is at the heart of the response to what does that even mean? For me personally, you know, the Lord allowed something very hard to really open my eyes and my heart to the deeper intimacy that he desired with me and for me. When I was a novice, a young sister, so in my second year, I sustained a pretty significant head injury. It was a technically a mild traumatic brain injury, um, but I hit my head and I got really sick. Uh, it was May, 2011. And from that impact, from that injury, I was in bed for several months. I started graduate school again. We were studying theology at the seminary that fall. And I had to withdraw from studies for the following quarters or trimesters. Can't remember what we were doing at that time. But I was just really sick. I was in bed for months. The the only thing that I could do really was get out of bed for mass and to make the holy hour each day. Mm. And I was able to be at table for most meals, but it was very hard because I entered religious life coming from a lifestyle of like a thousand miles per hour. I would like wake up at five in the morning and be checking emails and okay, what state representative are we going to get after this morning to, you know, push our legislation and stop the Illinois FOCA bill and all these things and young adults. And I was doing chastity talks for teenagers and I was 
doing like video activism. And I mean, I was just, I was so such a live wire, you know, nothing in my heart was slow. It was, I wasn't present even to myself Mm -hmm. and I love Jesus. And I went to mass every day, but there was a lack of presence, like real presence in my life, even though I believed and I had a relationship, there was a depth that I didn't realize was even possible. And it was in those months in bed and being sick and in pain and unable to do anything, which was how I related to God. God, look, I can do all these things for you. And this is why you love me. Mm -hmm. I realized that no, not at all. Actually, it's because I simply exist and he loves me into being that Mm -hmm. he loves me. There's nothing I need to do. Actually, it's like Benedict says in Introduction to Christianity, he wrote when he was Colonel Ratzinger, letting God act on us, that is Christian sacrifice. You know, and I realized the Lord had so much more for me and that it's living from who I am in Him that transforms what I do and makes it of any value. And there came a point where I believed in my heart, even if I'm in bed for the rest of my life, God still loves me and my life still has value. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, like I've been healed. I was even able to run another marathon, you know, in the last several years. So I'm much better now. But, you know, coming face to face with our poverty and our limitation as a human person, sometimes God has to allow that for us to realize what really is most precious and it's him and it's our friendship with him. Yeah. So I'll never forget that. It's a great story. I'm just sitting here kind of processing it because that's a that's a great question for people to ponder, right? Like coming face to face with our poverty. Sometimes it's traumatic brain injuries. Sometimes it's job loss. Sometimes it's death. Sometimes it's physical suffering. Sometimes it's just like the poverty of the day-to-day grind of life. You know, like alerting yourself to I'm so busy and I need to say no more. And I don't because I don't want to let people down. And where is that coming from? This fear that people aren't going to love me if I don't say yes to every demand or when a child is misbehaving or when there's a, a battle happening in your marriage or you know whatever it is, like, I think time and time again, we're confronted with how much we lack. And we think if we just we organize more or we work harder or we save more money or we're you know better prepared with our meal plan or whatever those like little things are, I'm clearly speaking from experience, then like, oh, well, I won't be poor anymore. Like I won't have that feeling of lack. But in reality, like if I, I can't fill that, like I can't fill the lack. And the Eucharist, Jesus can. And let's put it that way, Jesus can. And the most direct way for me to, access Jesus, to be close to Jesus is in the Eucharist. Why do you think people resist that then? Like people are just willing to walk around miserable. We're walking wounded. We're walking lack. And yet sometimes we don't want to just go to the source that can heal that. What do you think that resistance is and where does it come from? Yeah. You know, for some reason, what just really kind of came up on my heart as you were talking was, I think it's Matthew 26, but it's right before, you know, the last supper account and the anonymous woman anoints Jesus And Judas like gets up in a wad, Mm -hmm. like, oh my gosh, why did she spend this money? What about the poor? And Jesus is like, the poor will always be with you. You will not always have me in that physical way, right? Mm -hmm. And that goes all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy. Like God says the same thing to Israel. (laughs) You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? The poor will always be with you. And we can hear Jesus say that or look at Deuteronomy and read that and think like, oh yeah, like the West side of Chicago or LA or the Bronx, they're going to be there, but <laughs> the poor will always be with you in the mirror. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? And it's like, we are in such denial of our poverty and, and what we do, I mean, I do it every day is we, we cultivate this self-reliance that's utterly irrational for a created being. <laughs> yeah. And not sustain ourselves. If it was not for the breath of God, neither of one of us would have a heart beating right now. Like we'd be dead, you know, but we think that we are fabricating our being and perpetuating it into continuity. And so it's this utter denial that we are these beloved creatures of a creator who is madly in love with us. Mm-hmm. Like this is the problem because we don't feel worthy. Like we have, we have condemned ourselves and Jesus came and through the Paschal mystery redeemed us. Like we are no longer condemned. We are saved, but is my heart open to that relationship? Mm -hmm. Do I believe that that's for me? 
or do I just want to keep living in my self-sufficient misery? I mean, like it sounds kind of harsh, but it's true. And I think we have to be honest with ourselves if if we're going to have any change in our lives, especially change for joy and change for peace. Sounds like revival comes about when there's a a killing of the self-reliance. And like even saying killing is quite dramatic, but like <laughs> yeah. like to to end that belief that I can do it by myself, which is it's so fascinating. My my sister pointed this out to me the other day. So I have a 5-year-old who is quick to ask for help because she's five. And like, you know, she wants to be independent, but but like simple things, like I can't get my jacket on. And there's kind of this like fine line that you walk as a parent with like, no, I know you can put your jacket on to like, oh, the, the arms are inside out. And like, it's hard for a kid to understand the concept of putting a hand in and like pulling it back out. It's something so simple. And so she's quick to ask for help versus my 85-year-old grandfather who like, if you offer help, there's this instant resistance of, well, no, I'm a grown man and I can do it on my own. And it's like, I don't know what happens between five years old where you ask for help and 85 years old where you refuse the help. But like the Christian journey almost kind of seems to be like, I need to know when I need help and I need to know when I can do it on my own. But like more often than not, it's the help that I need from the Lord. And maybe it's a lack of humility. Maybe it's a, a fear that like God won't come through. I think that sometimes happens in my head. Oh, well, if I ask God for help and he doesn't deliver it, then he doesn't love me. So I'm just going to, I'm just not going to ask, you know, like I'm not going to bother him with that. And that feeling of unworthiness, how does relationship with the Eucharist, one, how can people foster that? Like, is it just a matter of going to adoration on a regular basis? Is it a matter of showing up to mass early? Like, what can we do to foster an intentional, I'm going to Jesus to try to solve this, to try to help me heal from this self-reliance? What does that look like as we foster it? And then two, what do you think that can do in the world? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and those are all just huge kind of like pivotal questions. Um, but I think ultimately, can we put the person first? Mm. Can we put the relationship first? You know, I think in our Christian lives, we have a bit of a habit of when we recognize a need, we go to God. Right. But that's not, I mean, if you only went to your husband when you needed him to do something, mm-hmm. your marriage would be a total nightmare. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Like that's not how a relationship works. And I, I don't know that we've cultivated an understanding that we are in relationship with the Lord. You know, we may be far from him. Our hearts might even be closed to him, but by the fact that we are creatures of a heavenly creator, we are in relationship with him. And so the relationship has to be first and and there needs to be some pathway for me to realize that not only am I in a relationship, I'm in a relationship with Jesus who loves me, who died for me and who said to me right before he died, love one another as I have loved you. Mm -hmm. So it's very personal. It's very intimate. And that's scary for most of us because most of us have had some sort of disruptive experience of a close relationship that ought to have been nourishing, that ought to have been affirming, that ought to have been loving. And, you know, for us who can recognize and confront that reality of whatever brokenness happened in our life, whether it was a child or in a relationship as an adult a broken marriage. I mean, people are walking around with all sorts of pain, Mm -hmm. you know, like wells of pain inside of them. But if I can't even recognize my own pain and I'm kind of just walking around with this mask of my life is all put together, which we're really good at that, then we're not even sensing that there's a depth of relationship possible for us with Jesus. And that's where the transformation happens. I go to him in my poverty. I go to him in my need, but I also, there needs to be some sense of I'm going to him to also give myself to him, to love him, to thank him for what he's done for me. So we need to have some sort of experience of the proclamation of the gospel, the charisma. Jesus has done this for me. We need to hear that proclaimed powerfully and our hearts have to be just open enough to receive it. And then kind of from there, you know, but we've never even heard the good news. Like, mm-hmm. and I think many Catholics really haven't heard it in that charismatic way. Mm-hmm. How could we even know that there's a possibility of a profoundly intimate relationship with my savior that can change my whole life, even if the circumstances don't change? Mm-hmm. That's 
the other kind of element of the revival. We're living that Eucharistic life for this intimate personal healing of the relationship, this growth of the relationship. But also I think like there's a greater impact here. Revival is not private. It's personal, but it's not private. It's not meant to be just in my house or in your convent, but like it's for the world, far beyond even just the reaches of the church. How did you become involved with the work of the revival? I mean, you're part of an order with of the Eucharist, so it seems very much like it was a a, a natural progression, but what was it like when you heard, okay, this is something that's happening. I think I can be involved. I, you know, was, was it an invitation? Did you ask? Tell us how that all kind of unfolded and then what your work is with this revival movement. Yeah, you know, it was actually, it was kind of a very scary moment. I got this email from someone at the USCCB, which I don't know anybody <laughs> at the yeah, You always think you're in trouble when those come through. <laughs> two and a half years ago, you know, or two years ago, two, I don't even know, more than two years ago. Anyways, I was like, oh no, like, why am I getting this email? Yeah. And it's like this person I don't know invited me to be part of this meeting with this bishop. I don't know <laughs> about this thing that I don't know about the like, Eucharistic revival. And so I, I told my superior, who was not yet a bishop, Father Bob, or wait, yeah, he was a bishop. He was a bishop at the okay. time, shortly after he became a bishop. He's like, well, sure. You know, so it was just a listening session. And Bishop Cousins, what he had done early on was he was inviting men and women from around the country involved with various works of the church to offer feedback to the initial ideas and plans mm-hmm. for the revival. So I was part of one of those sessions. And of course, like I, I go into almost everything in life incredibly impassioned. <laughs> so I was probably very impassioned. I can't quite recall. But one of the last, or rather the last question that Bishop Cousins asked of all of us that were on that call was, well, what can you do for the revival? You know, and I didn't even ever imagine that I would become so involved, Mm -hmm. but I just simply said, well, you know, my community is the Franciscan of the Eucharist of Chicago, so I'm sure we would love to do anything we can. And so unbeknownst to me, Bishop had, Bishop Cousins reached out to Bishop Bob Lombardo, my superior, and asked if I could participate more. And Mm -hmm. so I was asked to be part of the executive committee. I think we're calling it a committee, executive team for the Eucharistic Revival. So basically it's a group of men and women, Mm -hmm. mostly lay people involved with diocesan work, university work, movements around the country. And we're kind of the second level after the bishops kind of helping make things happen. So before the National Eucharistic Congress Corporation was established, this was the main body of people that were kind of helping to get the revival off the ground since then, the NEC Corporation's been established, mm-hmm. and there's a wonderful, small but mighty staff that have come together under the profound leadership of, I'm so proud to call him a friend, Tim Glomkowski mm-hmm. from Denver, the Denver area. I mean, they've just been doing fantastic work. So all these different moving parts are working together to cultivate revival and to prepare for the Eucharistic Congress in July 2024. So right now, or... In the early phase of the revival, my primary responsibility was to help make the National Eucharistic Preachers Movement happen. And so I worked Mm. with Father Jorge Torres from the Diocese of Orlando, who is now working for another office at the OCCB, um, but still involved with, he's a part of uh, clergy, consecrated life and vocations. He's their director now, but he and I worked together with a man from Focus, John Bishop. He was on the team as well. And we were able to go from an idea to 57. Yeah diocesan and religious priests in like seven months. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It was just amazing and miraculous. And we had a formation retreat here in Chicago preached by some of our bishops and it just is fantastic. And so they've been going out around the country preaching charismatically this message of Eucharistic revival rooted in the gospel. And so after that got off the ground, I was asked to move over to the newsletter team. And so I've been working on that team since June. And then later in the fall, I assumed responsibility for that. So I'm kind of like the main Mm -hmm. person there with a a wonderful team, a couple of people at the conference, including Zachary Keith from Evangelization and Catechesis, who's been a great colleague. And then religious sister, Sister Catherine Hermes from the Daughters of St. Paul. Mm -hmm. So they're kind of like my two right-hand people to keep it moving. We have a team of religious men and women and a couple of other lay people who are intimately involved with this. So it's, it's been really incredible just to see this work come together and to provide this consistent resource, offering inspiration, information, and formation for the grassroots to cultivate revival. Yeah. Y'all are doing great work. And I think, you know, as, as we get closer and closer to the Congress, 
there's kind of this question and I've, I've heard it, you know, when I've traveled, when I've spoken, I've heard it from folks on the radio and, and here, like, okay, what is this? Like, what's, what are we doing? Like, is this like, just go to mass more? Is this like all have to go to Indianapolis? Like what is, the, and I, I, I'd love to give you a chance. Like, what is the goal of this revival? These newsletters, this movement, these preachers, like at the end of the day, the day after the Congress is over, when the team inevitably meets back together, what do y'all want to have happened? Yeah. I mean, we are looking to inspire a movement of Catholics to be converted, healed, formed, and unified through this encounter with Jesus and the Eucharist and sent out on mission for the life of the world. Because we talk about living a Eucharistic life, and that's a particular lens. Like Bishop Cousins talks about it as living a life of worship, mm-hmm. you know, rooted in this experience of the Eucharist. And what do we do at Mass? Every time we go to Mass, we are reliving the Paschal mystery. We're coming into intimate communion with our Savior, Jesus Christ, in the Father, through the Holy Spirit. But Jesus gave the great commission, go forth, preach, teach, baptize. And I think for many Catholics, we don't live fully into our baptismal identity. You know, part of being a baptized member of the body of Christ is being missionary, is Mm -hmm. going out and proclaiming the good news that we have been saved. Jesus is our Savior, and He has so much more for us than we can possibly imagine um, and a kingdom that is not of this world, but can even begin now if we open our hearts to that experience of the kingdom of God, fullness of which is in, in eternity. So it's about profound transformation. Mm-hmm. It's about openness to the Holy Spirit. It's not a program. It's not, you know, we're not telling any parish, any diocese, any apostolate what to do. We're saying The bishops have discerned that the Lord is calling for an inspiring revival in this country in response to a crisis. Mm -hmm. The data after the pandemic is now we have only 13% of Catholics attending Sunday Mass regularly. That means 87% of the baptized members of the body of Christ in this country do not participate in the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. How can you transform culture? How can you be a light to the world, salt of the earth? if you're not even in contact with Mm -hmm. Jesus. So, you know, there's so much there, but I always see it as through a lens of opportunity instead of a lens of devastation or discouragement. Like this is a call. It's a call to confidence and merciful love, as my friend St. Therese would repeat over and over and over. God has not abandoned his people. Mm -hmm. It's a call to confidence in his merciful love and allowing ourselves in Mostly, I think, little ways to be instruments of that merciful love. You know, so whether it's in our families, it's in, in our workplaces, you know, I think it's very easy for me to associate it with, with small children because, you know, you're so blessed to be a mom and mm-hmm. so blessed to work with small children in an itty-bitty Catholic school. You know, but these children are just so precious. And I have this little plaque by the door. It's a C.S. Lewis quote. Children are not a distraction from more important work. They are the most important mm-hmm. work. And I think we've missed a very profound opportunity when we overlook the formation of our smallest children Mm -hmm. because of a profound religious sense. Mm -hmm. And I've had the experience over and over again through evangelizing catechesis where five-year-olds literally believe that piece of bread is Jesus. Oh, yeah. They are not yeah. incapable. There is of no question about it. Yeah, like, and if I if I even so much as look away at mass because the two year old is being a two year old, my daughter will be like, "Mom, that's Jesus." It's like, sorry, sorry. I think he understands what I'm doing right now. But oh yeah, they they know. Yeah, sister, I love that you brought up kids because I didn't expect to take it in this direction. But you said you just work at a Catholic school. My daughters go to a small Catholic school. They have adoration mm-hmm. once a week. It's one of the reasons we chose the school that we chose. I always love to ask my five year old. Like, what'd you talk about with Jesus this week? And she's like, that's private mom. And I'm like, you know what it is, but can you tell me like who you prayed for? Like, I'd love to know who you prayed for. But I also love that like, she knows that that's just conversation. Like I just get to go talk to Jesus on more than one occasion that Adoration Chapel is right by where after school care pickup is. So like, hey mom, can we go say hi? You know, like my child is often the one inviting me to go say hi to Jesus. What have you seen? I've often heard if you can explain it to a seven-year-old, you can explain it to anyone, right? Like if you can explain it to the the second grader who's getting ready for first communion and explain is maybe not even the right word, but invite, then you can invite anyone. What have you seen already kind of happening? Like tell us 
I guess, kind of give us some glory stories of like this revival movement. We, it's, it's in process. It's not culminating in anything. Like it is in process. What have we already seen as these matches have been lit and these fires start to burn? Yeah, totally. I mean, just like a story from my own classroom last year, right before First Communion. So we've been working with, you know, these children for a couple of years. I drew a circle with a cross on the whiteboard and I said, what have I drawn? You know, one of the kids raised. I was a camera for a boy or girl, but raised hand. That's Jesus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so like, yeah, the is Jesus. So I said, they're all sitting on the carpet and they're super quiet. I was like, guys, I have something really, really serious to tell you. And they all are just like 100% locked in. <laughs> and I said, guys, most grownups do not believe this is Jesus. And they all gasped. Mm-hmm. And one little boy said, how could they? (laughs) (laughs) I love it. (laughs) This is so amazing. You know, and so like these very small children are so convicted by this. And now the frequent story is how do I accompany them in their journey to try to get their parents to take them to mass? Mm. So, and I think it's a mixed bag about like 70% of the kids will make excuses for their families. Mm -hmm. And about 30% of them are just kind of like, oh, come on, mom and dad, you know? And so there's still so much evangelization there to happen, but they have that seed of faith and they know it's Jesus, Um, which is, I think like, that's the good news is that. So another story, a priest that I know told me this story, and I think it was within the last couple of years so again, like revival isn't something that we do. Revival is something that the Lord is doing. So I think the Lord has been tilling the ground for this. Little girl makes her first communion. She's part of their Catholic school. Next Sunday after first communion, she gets up. She's super dressed, ready to go to mass. Looking for her parents, goes into their bedroom and they're in bed sleeping. And she looks at them. She's like, mom and dad, aren't we going to mass? Mm-hmm. And her, her father, like biblically was literally cut to the heart. They get out of bed, they got dressed, and they haven't missed Sunday Mass since. Wow. So another story, you know, there's a lot to be said for the cultivation of Catholic identity in our schools, but our schools are not utterly lost. Yeah. You know, there's so much opportunity there. I know some of our religious communities have been doing studies over this year of different church documents on the Eucharist. Many of our dioceses have hosted Eucharistic Congresses, are preparing for Eucharistic Congresses. A lot of our lay apostolates are making the Eucharist the center of yeah. what they're doing at their upcoming gatherings. Yeah, I know yeah. there's a diocese where the bishop has invited every staff this summer to a regional retreat. So from the janitor to the pastor, wow. to help them spiritually be ready to lead during the parish year. Here in Chicago, I've been working with a little group of colleagues that serve our catechists and our Catholic school teachers, and we are working on some Corpus Christi lesson plans mm. and trying to help bring the message to the children before they leave RE in school. The Dominican sisters in Nashville put together some wonderful resources around educating on the Eucharist and Corpus Christi. So I think people are bringing their gifts to the Mm -hmm. table. I Mm -hmm. mean, it's sometimes hard to even plan how to continue to develop the Eucharistic Revival website because there's so much. Right, right. There's a lot going on, yeah. And it's just so exciting to see what the Lord is doing in people's hearts. Another thing that just pops in my mind is, Archdiocese of Detroit has their I Am Here yeah. uh, project yeah. and just testimonies mm-hmm. um, or even just in our newsletter, we're always trying to feature testimonies of people and how their lives have been transformed by the encounter mm-hmm. with Jesus Eucharist. Yeah. It's really cool to see. Like every now and then when when the devil will slip into my brain and be like, oh, it's not enough. It's not enough. Ticket sales haven't been enough or people aren't talking about it enough or you know, the average Pusitan Catholic has no idea what's going on. It's like, yeah, but Jesus knows. Like, do you trust that Jesus knows and like things are happening and things are moving? And you mentioned all these Eucharistic Congresses. I think six or seven of my events in the next year are all diocesan Eucharistic Congresses. And I was like, I've I've literally been on the road for a decade and they've never been called that before. And now like they are because this is happening and this is the conversation and and this is what we're we're seeing. And it's it's beautiful and it's exciting. And thank you for your work with all of it, sister, and for sharing with us. We end our conversations this season with kind of our our golden question where you get a minute, I call this the elevator pitch. You get an elevator pitch minute with someone. It can be anyone in that elevator, a believer, a non-believer, your mom, the Pope. I don't, I don't care who it is, but you get to pick who's in that elevator with you and what you share with them 
about the Eucharist. So who is it and what are you going to share with them? Yeah, you know, I just was thinking about my little brother. He, I mean, he's not a little boy anymore. <laughs> he's a grown man, but he's just had so many struggles in his life. And he's very far from Jesus, but I'm confident that Jesus is right next to him. And I think that I would just want to ask him if he can remember his first communion and, and remember what happened that day. And I would want to share with him the memories I have of how he was at my first communion mm. and just how how precious he was. And he was just so happy and smiling that whole day and just invite him into those memories of when he was happy, you know, and ask him to consider the possibility that Jesus is real and that he mm. loves him. Mm-hmm. I think it's a great, it's a great exercise. Ask your parents for the photos of your first communion, you know, if they have them. Our, my mom has ours it's just my sister and I framed baptism photo, first communion photo, me, my wedding photo, my sister's entering religious life soon. So maybe we'll have that photo next, you know, and just kind of the sacramental life and thinking back to those moments is really powerful. Sister, uh, where can folks sign up for this newsletter, which is excellent. Again, common conversation and my mom and I's text messages of, have you read what sister wrote today? Uh, where can we read the newsletter and where can we follow the work of the revival and your religious community? If there's anyone that wants to discern with you guys or, or support you guys. Yeah, absolutely. So eucharisticrevival.org and slash newsletter, you can subscribe right there. It's free. We publish every week and there's other you know, information that comes through those emails as well. So eucharisticrevival.org slash newsletter. Check out the Eucharistic Revival website without the slash newsletter. There's so much content that we have up there and there'll be more and more. And we are developing, you probably noticed content for children now on a monthly basis as well. So just really trying to diversify what we're offering to help people to cultivate revival. Our religious community, it's franciscansofthecharistofchicago.org. I think. We'll find it. We'll put it in the show notes, I promise. (laughs) pretty easy to find in Google. But I just really want most of all to encourage everyone to pray and to ask the Lord, Lord, what is your invitation to me? Mm -hmm. How do you desire to set me free, to transform me, to be in deeper friendship with me so that with you, I can go on mission? Mm -hmm. The thing is that we never are alone. Even when we feel like we've got it and we don't need Jesus, why not have him right there? Yeah. (laughs) No, and I think that that, like Paul talks about, that transformation of the mind Mm -hmm. is often just as important and precedes the transformation of the heart. Mm -hmm. You know, and so if I can cultivate a habit of believing I need Jesus, then my heart will start to inculcate that as well. Yeah, a great word, a great word. Sister, thank you for taking the time to join us. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Katie. Thank you. When I interview folks, I'm writing copious notes, and I have in my notes from Sister, we go to the Eucharist because we need something, we need Jesus, but we also go to the Eucharist to give something, which is our heart. And in the giving of our heart, Jesus Christ receives that. He would always receive that well. He would always receive that perfectly because he's Jesus, and and tenderly shape and care for and love that heart so that the heart that we have maybe perhaps broken and in need of healing, wounded, whatever it might be, isn't just kind of cast aside, but is is tenderly stitched back together, is tenderly healed. I think there's a, a conversation to be had in all of these conversations about the Eucharist <laughs> with regards to healing. Perhaps you'd like to go back and listen to our first season this year on healing You can find links to all of our Ave Explorers series, this of course being the 20th, down in our show notes. But I really thought that was quite beautiful. I go to the Eucharist because I need something, but I also go to the Eucharist to give something. And that is my very self. That is my heart. That is is hopefully this intimate encounter with Jesus that I'm able to receive. All of our conversations this season, I think have the opportunity and the chance to really be, be quite fruitful for you. And I say that, I say they have the chance to be really quite fruitful for you because what we're hoping with this series isn't just to educate. This isn't a a theological breakdown of transubstantiation. And if you don't know what that is, it's the, the ontological change, so to speak, of bread and water, or excuse me, of bread and wine into body and blood. This isn't necessarily, okay, there's gonna be a quiz at the end so that you are an approved believer of the Eucharist. It's an invitation. Our shows are always just an invitation to a deeper understanding, to hopefully a deeper love of Jesus. After I've had a lot of these conversations, I think it's worth noting and sharing 
I've been trying to make a holy hour once a week as we've been recording these sessions and these series, these conversations, because it'd be somewhat foolish and perhaps even hypocritical of me to say, oh, hey, the Eucharist matters in the intros and the outros and in the conversation, but to not make time for the Eucharist myself. Who would I be if I was a Catholic podcast host who wasn't actually trying to go live my Catholic faith in the day-to-day? I want to have that level of integrity in my life. And so I've been making holy hours. And after I recorded with Sister Alicia Torres, I actually, my phone buzzed and I got asked if I could go fill in. I'm on the sub list for the, the Adoration Chapel. And I, you know, I, I had a gazillion and one different excuses to not go. I, you know, I've got another interview in like two hours and I've got my radio show today and there's a ton of emails that need to be replied to and an op-ed to write. And I've, I've got stuff on my to-do list. But is that stuff more important than going and talking to Jesus? In this instance, no. And so I, I texted back. I can be there in 15 minutes. And then <laughs> they responded, oh, no, this is for, I'd misread the text message. The substitute was for like a week later. And, and so they were just like texting ahead of time, asking people for a sub, and they didn't need somebody in the next 15 minutes. And so I ended up just staying at my desk and I felt disappointed. It's like, oh, man, like I, here I am. I psyched myself up. I've got a million reasons to say no, but I'm going to say yes. And then it's, oh, no, 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 it's it's for next week. And so I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh, well, I guess I can't go. And I thought, wait, what? Yes, you can. Like, you don't have to go on an appointment. Like, you could just go see Jesus. And so I hopped in my van. I needed to run to Target anyway because... I'm a millennial woman and there's always a reason to go to Target. And I swung by the Adoration Chapel on my way and just said hi, spent a few minutes, said hi to Jesus, left. If not now, when, right? I have something I need and I have something to give. Maybe you do too. Again, Sister Alicia Torres' newsletter is linked down in the show notes. We also have linked down in the show notes our website, AveMariaPress.com, where you can find the entire Ave Explorers catalog, all 20 seasons that we've done, And also sign up for our regular emails so you don't miss anything with this series. We'd really be grateful if you'd journey with us. We'd be grateful if you'd give us a rating and a review so more folks can find the show. But most of all, we're just really grateful that you're taking this journey with us to continue to dig into what it means to live a Eucharistic life, to allow the Lord to come reign in us in new ways. We'll be back next week with more incredible conversations. You're not going to want to miss these guests Sign up for the email so you don't miss anything. We'll see you soon. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.